imagine. And so you may be aware that the, the eschatological view called postmillennialism was very popular during the age of enlightenment, during the age of reason and into the modern period. Postmillennialism essentially taught that Christ's millennial reign, though not a, a literal thousand years, is happening currently. And we can expect that earth is only going to get better and better over time. We can expect that God is going to usher in gospel success. Everyone across the world is going to begin to respond to Jesus in saving faith. We're going to see transformation in our culture. Peace and prosperity is coming as the world will just get better and better. And in the Age of Enlightenment, a utopian vision made a lot of sense. But then the 20th century came. Then we had World War I and World War II and the atomic bomb, and very few theologians hold to postmillennialism anymore. The 20th century smacked us in the face, struck down our optimism, caused us to realize that, yeah, we, we have a whole lot of power within our minds, the, the rational faculties that God has given us, and our problems go much, much deeper. They cut to our hearts. Our problems weren't just things that could be solved by deep thinking. They were problems of our hearts, our desires, our loves. And Lent reminds us of this, of course. Lent is not chiefly a season about Christian education. Lent is not a season in which we're seeking out new Bible study practices and habits, in which we're trying to learn Greek and Hebrew, in which we're taking seminary courses so that we can better understand the foundations of our faith. None of those things are bad, but they're not the typical Lenten practices. What do we do in Lent? We repent, and we fast, and we pray, because we recognize there's something wrong with our hearts. And that's why today's text, Romans 1, 18 to 25, is perfectly fitting for the first Sunday of Lent. Because Romans 1 is teaching us that the, the greatest problem in our lives is our hearts. The greatest problem in our lives is our disordered loves. We know enough. We don't love enough. We don't worship enough. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans 1. We'll see three things in our text today. First, our biggest problem is not a head problem. Our biggest problem is a heart problem. We'll reiterate that point. Secondly, God's punishment is to give us exactly what we want. And third, the only healing, the only solution we can find for our problem is to set our heart upon Jesus. So read with me, Romans 1, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves." 
because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The first thing we notice in our text together is that our biggest problem is not a head problem, it's a heart problem. Paul is just getting to the heart of his letter. Why is he writing this letter to the Romans? It's to expound on the gospel that he preaches. To share with the Roman church who he's not met, who he's not had the opportunity to preach to before, what is his gospel message? And he wants the Roman church to understand and support it so that they can send him to Spain so that he can preach there. And as he begins to explain exactly what his gospel message is, he starts with the wrath of God. He starts with the bad news. He starts with the reason we need the gospel in the first place. So what's the bad news? We suppress the truth. You see, our problem is not that God is infinitely unknowable, far beyond us in every way. We could never have a relationship with him. That would be a really big problem. And Paul says, that's not your problem. The problem is not that God has communicated to himself to us and we just don't have the capacity to rightly understand, to rightly worship him. That would be a big problem too. And Paul says that's not your problem. The problem is you know God and you reject God. You know the truth and you suppress it. You don't want it to be true. The problem is our hearts. We know enough. His infinite power, his, his divine nature have been revealed through creation since the beginning of creation. And yet, we do not worship him. We do not love him. We do not submit to him as we ought, not because we don't know, but because we don't want to. Sometimes our children give us the, the simplest, clearest examples I've had this conversation with my toddler, Orson, about a thousand times recently. I'll say to Orson, Orson, we don't hit people. Hitting is bad. And Orson says back to me, but I want to do bad things. And toddlers just say what we have pushed deep down. The problem is not that we don't know what's bad and what's good. The problem is we want what's bad. We want to push God away. Our hearts have disordered desires, disordered loves. Ashley Knoll, the world's leading Thomas Cranmer scholar, Cranmer being the architect of the Anglican Church as you know it, the author of the Book of Common Prayer, has spoken a lot about what Cranmer's anthropology is. What did he believe about humans? And he said, Knoll says Cranmer's anthropology is essentially this. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Hear that order. It is not that you learn some new facts and you live according to the truth. Humans don't work that way. You want something. You love it. You desire it. And so you choose it. And then you justify it to yourself later. That's how we work. Cogito, ergo sum, is not the truth, according to Cranmer. I think, therefore, I am. No, amo, ergo sum, I love, therefore, I am. The defining characteristic of behavior of humans is that we desire. And again, Paul tells us, our desires are twisted. They're broken. 
Rather than desiring the God of the universe, the God who has created all things, sustains all things, gives all things to us as a gift, rather than desiring him, worshiping him, we would rather push him away. The original sin of Adam and Eve, who looked on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and thought that it would be good to be like God, a.k.a. to be God and get God out of their lives, that sin is written on our hearts. We have that same desire to be our own gods. And so we push God out. And this is critically important for you to understand in the season of Lent. This season of preparation, of trial, of prayer, of transformation. You need to know that ground zero for your transformation in the season of Lent is not your head, it's not your thoughts. It's not your hands. It's not your actions. It is your heart. It's what you love. It's your desires. Martin Luther's famous Latin phrase, incurvatus and say, is supremely important, supremely helpful. We are curved in on ourselves in our sins. We take all things and use them for our own pleasure. And what Luther particularly meant was our spiritual lives. We take our prayer and our fasting and our repentance, we take the spiritual goods of God's kingdom and we use them for our own pleasure. Primarily what we're doing is proving to others or proving to ourselves, I'm a good person. That's what we're trying to do. We're not even trying to actually do them for God's sake, but for our own sake. As Luther says, man uses not only physical, but even spiritual goods for his own purposes and in all things seeks only himself. So if ground zero for your transformation this Lent is your heart, then you need to pray for the Holy Spirit to come upon you. You hear it in the opening of our liturgy each week in the prayer of purity. We pray together, Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known. What's our problem? Not that our minds are clouded, that our hearts are twisted. And what's the solution? Cleanse our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. Not cleanse our minds, cleanse our hearts. So that what will happen? So that we may perfectly love you. The problem of our hearts is our biggest problem. And we need the Holy Spirit to come upon us, to transform us, to lead us into new loves, new desires for God. And so I encourage you on this first Sunday of Lent, do not enter this Lenten season with the false optimism of the age of enlightenment, the age of reason. That if you simply know enough, you'll make the right decisions, you'll do the right things. History tells us otherwise. And do not enter this Lenten season with the false optimism of the Pelagian or semi-Pelagian heresies that tell you you have everything you need within yourself to respond in obedience to God. You don't. You have a broken heart that does not know how to love God. You need the Holy Spirit. So repent of your disordered desires. Fast of those desires that have an inordinate control over you, but most of all, pray for the Holy Spirit to do a work in your heart to transform what you love.
Look back at the text with me, verses 21 to 25. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. The first thing we notice in our text is that our biggest problem is not a head problem, it's a heart problem. But the second thing we notice is that God's punishment is to give us exactly what we want. And it's the worst thing he could give us. Romans 1 teaches us that God is just. God is fair. The punishment fits the crime. God gives us what we want. Instead of honoring God, instead of loving God, instead of living in gratitude and worship to the God who has given us everything, we rejected him and we turned to idolatry. We began to worship the creation rather than the creator. And this might seem like, you know, something really ancient. Like, oh yeah, pagan religions, they struggle with idol worship, but that's not really common in our modern world. And that's why we need to take a closer look. Because what Paul's describing here is a universal human problem. God gave us over to what? The lusts of our hearts. I actually like the NIV's translation of this word a little better, sinful desires. One, because lust always gets us thinking in one particular direction, gets us thinking about one particular kind of sin, and just look a few verses ahead. Certainly, Paul does have disordered sexual desires in mind, but that's not the only kind of disordered desire he's thinking of. He's also thinking of all the various ways We could have disordered desires. But secondly, I like the translation sinful desires because the root word epithemeo doesn't always have a negative connotation. It simply means really strong desires, cravings, longings. It's why Jesus can use this root word epithemeo in Matthew 13, 17, when he says that righteous people and the prophets longed to see and hear him. It's why Paul can use the same word in Philippians 1.23 to say that it is his desire to depart and be with Christ. Or again, why he can say in 1 Timothy 3.1 that those who aspire to the office of overseer desire a noble task. You hear this strong, intense longing in each of those examples. The prophets longed to see Jesus. Paul longed to be with Jesus. Those who are called in God's church long to fulfill biblical office. And so it's not always negative, but the vast majority of the time it is. The vast majority of its uses in the New Testament, epithemeo means sinful desires, because here's the catch. The vast majority of our intense, strong cravings and longings are disordered. We love the wrong things. We love the things God has forbidden, or we love those things that God has given to us and we make them ultimate. We put them in the place of God. And that's why idolatry can be anything, 
anything that you love in the place of God, that you love more than God, is an idol. Anything can be an idol, not just wood and stone images crafted to worship some idea of a false god. Your idol might be money. Perhaps you worship at the altar of money and you crave what money can give you, comfort and security and status before others. And you live your whole life for those things. Your greatest desire is wealth and security and status and money is your idol. Or perhaps freedom is your idol. You are obsessed with having ultimate flexibility and control of your life. You want no one to have an obligation over you. And so you worship at the the controls of having every choice, every option, never being tied down. Freedom might be your idol. Or perhaps there's a dangerous one to say in our church because we have an outrageous number of kids, especially in first service. Maybe family is your idol. And you worship what family can give you. And everything about your life is wrapped up in the happiness, the success of your kids. Nothing matters more than that. And you worship it more than you worship the Lord Jesus. Anything can be an idol. But here's the catch. God gives us over to these desires and it transforms us. We become like what we worship. We become darkened in our hearts. We become foolish in our thinking. Or as as Tim Keller helped me realize, there's this theme actually throughout all of Scripture that idol worshipers become deaf and blind and mute, unmoving, unthinking, unspeaking like their idols. It's why we read Psalm 115 earlier. We become like what we worship, and when we worship a thing, Instead of the creator, we become like a thing. We become inhuman. We become completely transformed. And so again, looking at these these familiar examples, if money is your idol, then perhaps you see yourself becoming increasingly transactional in all your relationships. You are always looking out for yourself, for what gain you can get from this interaction. And you are cutting people out of your life who are a drain and you're only seeking to interact with those you see there might be a return on your investment. And perhaps you see yourself becoming increasingly greedy, hoarding your resources, not being generous towards those in need. Perhaps you see yourself changing your your ethical boundaries because you're going to do whatever it takes to get more. And so you see how your love of money is making you inhuman. It's making you greedy and transactional. Or perhaps your idol, again, is freedom. And as you worship at the altar of freedom, you find that you refuse to engage in any relationship that would actually have a demand upon you. You flee marriage. You flee strong friendships. You flee even small commitments like a Bible study or a small group because who knows what better opportunity might come this Thursday night. I can't be tied up. You won't be bound by anything, and so you become increasingly isolated and lonely and selfish, always thinking about your desires above everything else. Or perhaps, again, your idol is family. 
and you pour all of your money and your resources and your time into the flourishing of your kids. Everything is about their education, their activities, their friendships, and you neglect the weightier things of their spiritual formation. You choose travel soccer over church on Sundays. You choose tutoring over family devotionals. You choose their friendships, their activities over leading them to Christ. You choose be a good person and a happy person over be a disciple of Jesus. And what's going to happen over time is either you are going to be crushed when they fail you, when, they, when your children do make mistakes, when they make the wrong calls, when they, they marry somebody who's a disaster, you're going to be crushed. It's going to ruin your life or you're going to ruin their lives. You're going to heap so much expectation upon them that you crush them with your burdens. And maybe these aren't your idols. Maybe you know what your idol is. And you know how it is dehumanizing you. How it is changing you. Making you greedy and selfish and isolated and lonely and and self-destructive in your own life and destructive of your own closest relationships Only you know. But here's the beauty of Lent. 40 days to take a step back. 40 days to take stock. Why am I like this? Where are my desires, my loves disordered? And where has it become an idol that is changing me, that is harming me, hurting me, enslaving me? Lent is this opportunity to slow down and notice through these practices of fasting and repentance, where am I beholden to an idol? And sometimes you only know when that thing is taken away. You only know when you become unreasonably irritable, angry, and self-destructive because that thing you love more than God has been taken away. Enter this Lent, eyes wide open. What is God trying to free you from? Look back at the text one more time. Verses 24 and 25. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. The first thing we see in our text is that our biggest problem is not a head problem, it's a heart problem. The second thing we see is that God's punishment is to give us exactly what we want and it's the worst thing he could give us. And finally, we see the only healing, the only restoration we can have from our sin and our idolatry is to turn our hearts back to Jesus. Admittedly, Paul says very little here about the solution about how to find healing. He's in the, in the midst of a, a bigger argument. He's going to find his conclusions later in chapter 3 and chapter 4, but he hints at it here in verse 25. In the midst of talking about idolatry, Paul can't help but jump into doxology. He has to worship God, the Creator, blessed forever. Amen. Because he knows deep down the solution to all of our disordered loves is to have a far superior love for God invade our heart. We need new love, love for Jesus to be transformed. 
And that's why Cranmer ordered the Anglican liturgy like he did. The prayer of purity is not meant to discourage you. It's meant to encourage you. That God knows your biggest problem is your heart. And he wants to send his Holy Spirit upon you to heal your heart. And when we confess our sins together and are reminded of the absolution we have in Jesus Christ, we are not meant to be discouraged but encouraged that God knows we are wayward sinners and he is reminding us that he is full of pardoning love for all those who turn from their sin and turn to Jesus Christ. And when we come to the table... Its primary purpose, according to Cranmer, is to speak the gospel to our senses, a word of comfort to sinners, that Jesus Christ died for us. And so we don't come to church primarily for five steps to live a better life. We don't come to church primarily for theological education. We don't come to church primarily for inspiration. We come to church to hear this word of the gospel again and again, that we would hear the love, the forgiveness, the mercy of God and be drawn to him, drawn to him in gratitude, in love. If you've been around Trinity for a while, you've heard me give this illustration before, but repetition is the mother of all learning. In the 19th century, there was a Scottish minister by the name of Thomas Chalmers who wrote a powerful little book called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And in that book, he was wrestling with a simple and yet very complex question. How can sinners get the love of the world out of their hearts and replace it with the love of God? And he says there's essentially two paths forward. The first is we can show our hearts how weak and inferior and and failing the world is, how it is not deserving of our love. And the second path forward is to show our hearts how wonderful and beautiful and glorious and kind the heart of God is, that we would love him. And the classic illustration is a beaker in a laboratory, and we need to get all of the air out of the beaker. And the first option, trying to show ourselves that the world is not worthy of our love, is akin to using a pump to suck the air out, to create a vacuum inside the beaker. You can do it, but it's really challenging. And as you know, nature hates a vacuum. That air will try to rush in whenever it can to fill up that beaker again. The love of the world will rush into our hearts whenever it can. But the other option is to simply fill the beaker with a heavier, more glorious substance. Fill it with water. And that is akin to showing our hearts the glories, the goodness, the beauty, the kindness of God, that we would love him, that we would turn to him. The chief way the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart, is to shine a spotlight on Jesus Christ, on his gentle and lowly heart, on his amazing grace, on his death for you, because he loved you. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing. And so today, 
as you come to the table, make it your prayer to see Jesus. To see him in all of his love and his mercy, in all of his goodness towards you. That your heart might catch a glimpse of how wonderful he is. That your heart's loves would be reordered by looking on his glorious face. Trinity, our biggest problem is not a head problem, it's a heart problem. God's punishment is to give us exactly what we want. And our healing is found in turning the eyes of our hearts upon Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is such an incredible, inexhaustible gift that you have given us your very Son. That in him we would be forgiven, we would be cleansed, we would be restored from all of our sin and our, our idolatry. We would be children of God. Lord, would you help us to see Jesus today? We would see Jesus. And by seeing him, fall evermore in love with him. And have our hearts, loves, reordered, transformed. We ask all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.